You're joining us today on the Better Left Network for an intimate discussion about religion. Today's hosts are Sarah, Jay, and two very special guests, that's Joy and Adam. Thanks for listening, and make sure to check out our full episode. Welcome back to the Better Left Podcast, and I am Sarah Smith. Again, I'll reintroduce myself. I'm sitting down here with, uh, we've got Joanne. Hi. Jay. Hi. And Adam. Shalom. We are here to sit down and have a really cool discussion about religion and how it affects politics growing up in in religion. Because if there's something on the left that we don't really talk about, that we don't really have a strong baseline in, it's it's religion. This is something we constantly attributed to only only the conservatives. Only conservatives deal with this. Only conservatives identify as religious folks. But that's fundamentally not true. And we're here to talk a little bit about why that's not true, about why religion does affect people on the left, about how it can affect your politics on the left, and about how it still affects people around us in politics on all sides. So I'm going to start and just ask a really quick basic overview question. Uh, I know all three of you come from relatively different levels of faith. I personally, this is not, you're not technically supposed to talk about religion or politics. We're doing everything all wrong. But so I grew up as my mom was uh, Irish Catholic and my dad was an atheist and religion never stuck in my family. The best I identify as is agnostic. And that's on a good day, but I don't really know. I just don't think about it. My only personal tenet is, you know, be, be excellent to each other. That's all I try to do. Be kind, be excellent. But what about you guys? So what are what are your just briefly explain like what religion you identify as? And then what are the two, let's say two top primary tenets that are really core to who you are as a person and who your religious identity is? So Joanne, let's start with you. Okay. Um, I would say I identify as progressive Christian. Um I it's been a long journey, I guess, getting to this point, but always feeling like on the road through Christianity, wanting to get to a place where I saw the church um, valuing people, valuing um, the marginalized, especially um, people who were less fortunate, who needed extra love and care instead of keeping those people on the margins and outside of the church. Um, and so I feel like now my faith in God can be more aligned with that religious practice. Jay? Uh, I think this is a great question. And I think it's a great question because labels, at least growing up for me, were always a very interesting thing. So my parents openly identified as non-denominational Christian. Now that carries a lot of connotations within primarily what it means is we think everybody's got it wrong. And so what we're after is we're after this right interpretation. We're after the right doctrine. And if you were asking me today, like you have, what do you identify as? I don't have a clean answer for that. Um, I spent a lot of time reading the Bible. I spent a lot of time going to church. I've been to Presbyterian, Lutheran, uh, evangelical, or yeah, evangelical, Episcopalian, Foursquare, so on and so forth. I'm familiar with the doctrine of all of them, but. I would probably still go along with non-denominational. I don't adhere to any specific doctrine as if they have the right message. Um, so for me, I think kind of like saying what Joanne did, it's really this. It's about, for me, what does it mean that we're doing to care for people? What does it mean that we're doing to care for the sick, the hungry, the poor, the widows, the orphans? And are we actually taking that to be a thing that's real? And so Christianity for me, and that's what I identify as. So to answer your question, I am, I do identify as Christian and it's what I believe. 
And so I think that's the most important part of it. But I think it's really important, at least for me and my own faith, to divorce it from this idea of orthopraxy and orthodoxy and move away from that. So what does that mean to you to separate it? What, well, can you explain what orthopraxy is versus orthodoxy and then sure, what does that yeah. mean to divorce that for you? Yeah, so orthodoxy is strictly the inter- the right interpretation of doctrine. It's the right interpretation of theology. It's the right interpretation of eschatology. And that means like the end time events or those kind of things, right? And orthopraxy is really about what is right conduct. And at least for me... I think those two things tend to break apart. And when we start getting into it, it gets really confusing. And there's this famous question that gets asked is, you know, rather than arguing about how many angels will fit on the head of a pin, we should be out there doing the right thing. And that's really important to me. So hopefully that answers the question. All right, no, that makes sense. And then Adam, give us your take on it. All right. Um, So I was raised in conservative Judaism. I still identify as such. Um, My... Dad came from also conservative Judaism. Uh, for those of you who are a little less familiar, conservative Judaism is not the same as like conservative politics. So it's not making me a right wing Jew. Um, the conservative movement of Judaism came about sort of as a res- as a response to the reform movement, which came about as a response to uh, the changes in. Orthodox Judaism um, over time. So uh, traditionally there was Orthodox Judaism. Um, it was just called Judaism. Uh, and then when when people started coming here from Eastern Europe in the 1800s, um, some people said like, wait, we got to modernize this. It doesn't make sense in our current, in like this Judaism that's coming from the old world doesn't make sense in the modern paradigm. So let's sort of scrap a lot of it, take the, take the important parts and um, and rebuild. Um, and then, uh, late, you know, early to mid 1900s, another group said, Hey, wait, reforms done gone too much. The opposite. Let's find a happy balance. So, uh, I grew up in that happy balance, which is funny because it's still finding a happy balance. And, uh, like that goes into sort of my big takeaways from it. Number one is, uh, that I, always question things like the biggest thing that one of the biggest things that I've taken from, from uh, how I grew up and how I was raised is that it's always okay to ask questions, whether it's because you don't understand something or because you don't agree with it. It's okay to ask those questions. Um, And they've been, you know, Jews have been doing that for thousands of years and continue to do so to this day. Um, And I guess the other thing that I, I take away from it, from, being raised Jewish um, comes from a story about Rabbi Hillel the Elder. Somebody asked uh, somebody asked him once to uh, if he could summarize the entirety of of the holy books of Judaism uh, while hopping on one foot, and he quoted one line: "Ve'ahavta l'reicha kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself." He says he says "Ve'ahavta l'reicha kamocha." Everything else is commentary. Now go study. 
<laughs> I think that is fascinating and very cool. And I mean, that kind of leads into what I wanted to ask next. So when we talk about growing up in religion, we see, and I keep pointing to the right wing because I think that's where we see that concentration the most, where people talk about growing up in religion. And you see these these people that are fanatics, they're Joel Osteen evangelists, which is the reality of what they are. And they're people that are, they're, they're reading a book that tells them to love the neighbor as themselves, um, to don't worry so much about the splinter in your neighbor's eye. Well, there's a plank in your own. Um, he who has what is what's the phrase about um, money? A, a rich man cannot pass through the into the heaven of kingdom, much like a camel can't pass through the eye of a needle. And there's they have all of this, and yet they turn around and they they vote for politicians who are actively oppressing people, actively cutting programs for the poor, actively fighting against people having health care. Um, they're actively doing all these horrible things and donating millions of dollars to these mega churches where they're spending it on on private jets and lavish vacations instead of helping the poor. And when we talk about growing up in religion, that's usually what conjures to mind on a lot of folks on the left, at least for me in my experience as a non-religious person. That's everyone I know that has ever talked about it. That's what they think of when they think about people growing up in the church, quote unquote. So growing up in religion, how did it affect your childhood? What was the what was the effect it had on you growing up? What was your experience growing up? Um, and what was that? What's it like for you to reflect on that now as an adult? When Adam was talking about um, the practice of asking questions, I was thinking about how my experience of Christianity is how frowned upon that was. Um, I think I could, I felt safe asking questions as a child with my parents, but in the church, you would see like adults get in trouble for asking the wrong kind of questions if it went against, you know, the orthodox teachings. And that was scary because there was also a lot of teaching in the fundamentalist Baptist church I grew up in where you, if you believed a very specific way, that is how you got to heaven and a very specific special part of heaven. And, you know, as a kid, all that stuff starts just to build up in you and not only in how you see yourself, but then how you see the rest of the world, how you see your friends and people at school and it creates such an us versus them mentality um, that where you have this idea that you're supposed to reach out to other people and yet if you see them as less than you because of your religious beliefs, I think it causes, at least for me, it caused just this, I, I, I look back now seeing how I think I was very judgmental of other people even though in my heart, in my personality, I wanted to like be open and loving to everybody. Interesting. You know, I, I think it's really funny too when you're thinking about these kind of things because my experience growing up is very similar to Joy's. Uh, you kind of get stuck in these two things, right? So one is the idea of I need to be holy because God is holy. I need to be holy because that is the, wow, I actually get choked up talking about that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Take a deep breath. No rush. Ooh. I'm giving you a hug from across the table. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wow. This is intense. Like, this is this is why I wanted to have this conversation. Like, it conjures. I know a lot about Jay's life as my partner, but it's. I think this is stuff that people are reluctant to talk about on the left because it's really hugely emotional. And I know your background, so that's. I'm super biased and have foreknowledge. <laughs> <laughs> But what it does is it causes this uh, distinction in your mind. And you say, okay, that person over there is not holy. 
that person over there is holy, so I want to be like them. And it causes this mentality where you look at other people and they're summed up by their actions. And I remember you and I were having a conversation the other day, sir, and I said, one of the things that we need to do is we need to look at people not as the person they are right there in the moment, but the person they can be. Wow, I am getting choked You're up. like hit hard by this one. I didn't mean to, I'm yeah, sorry. That's okay, I was expecting that. This is my fault. Bad discussion. And to look at somebody for as the person they could be. And I think that's really important. Um, and so for me, I think about there's this book that was really popular growing up for me, which was, uh, what's his, I, you probably know this one, Joey, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know this one. Yeah, what is it? <laughs> so what it was, was this idea that even in how you were like, I love how you said, unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> so there was this idea of courtship that existed, right? And so where you see this kind of like purity culture that comes out and plays in there was primarily in dating. People would look at each other and say, I can't date you because you watch this, or I can't date you because of this background. You're encouraged. Season eight of Game of Thrones. I loved season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I can't date you anymore. <laughs> I loved watching people's responses to season eight of Game of Thrones. Don't worry, I'm only seven and a half seasons behind. <laughs> it's fine, you just stay there. But that was, I think when you look at that book, it really is about making sure that you're engaged in right conduct and making sure that you're doing the right things. And when you don't do the right thing, you feel shame. And it's that shame that kind of gets in there and it propels you forward. And what happens is you fail to, wow, you fail to see yourself as the person you could be. And so <clears throat> I respect the church in a lot of ways. I respect a lot of the things I learned because I think a lot of it was good. Uh, but there was this cycle that kind of went in there where you can't ask questions even though like I had a family that asked me to ask questions and encouraged me to do so. And in fact, the Bible even tells you to do it. it in the New Testament, it talks about always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. But it's not there in the culture. So thinking about growing up, how did that affect me? It created this uh, dichotomy of self where you think, okay, I can be this person. I can be this thing, but I'm not there yet. I can do this but I'm not there yet. And it's difficult. It's a really difficult thing to resolve in your brain and your mind as a kid because you have the schism of self and it keeps pushing and pushing and pushing. So that's a big part of it for me. I mean, I got lots of stories I can tell about being mm -hmm. in the church and it, but like if I were to sum it up, that for me is probably the biggest thread to pull on. So I just want to be totally clear. So your biggest struggle growing up in the church is dealing with that schism of self and dealing with that dichotomy between who you wanted to be and who you felt like you were. Who you're supposed to who be. Who you're supposed to be. Yes. So um, I just want, and either of you, any of you, please chime in if this is relevant to you at all. But if so, um, who you who you should be? What does that mean from the from your perspective in the evangelical fundamental church? Can he answer? Sure. I mean. Uh, I actually am really curious about your answers to that, and then we can talk about me. Is that all right? Yeah, can we repeat the question? Sure. So when you talk about this idea of who you're supposed to be versus who you are, who you could be, um, what does it mean when you say who you're supposed to be? Who are, who are you supposed to be within the context of growing up as a kid in the church? I mean, for me, it was whoever was the authority figure, whatever they said, I just 
felt super compelled to obey that. And um, I think it was sort of this idea of perfection. And, you know, you use that word holy. And I think the idea that we should be able to be seen by like the outside world as looking, looking different, acting different. And so it was like this, this idea of perfection that was unattainable and also um, kind of suppressing our natural selves. Interesting. And what about, so for, that's the female perspective. I think that's really interesting actually because this, oh, I guess who wants? So the female perspective in the church is that idea of submission and being holy and being perfect and just chasing perfection silently, never questioning anything. That's and my- pure, being yep, pure. <laughs> purity, purity culture. And then yeah. for men though, it's not something that we talk a lot mainstream wise even about the effect of church, uh, the church and church culture on women, but we don't really talk about it on men. Before we answer that question, I'm gonna ask this. Did you ever read the books Wild at Heart and Captivating? I feel at that point, I was already starting to rail a little <laughs> bit against those ideas of like who the woman should be in relationship and who the what a perfect man should be. Yeah. But you know them. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really funny. So there are these two books. Um, one's called Wild at Heart and the other's called Captivating. And it kind of encapsulates exactly what you're saying. From the female's perspective, it talks about how women want to join up in an adventure. They want to join up in a bigger thing. And it's supposed to be their, not necessarily, I don't know how to say it, but like this passion that they have for both Jesus as their God and also as their husband. And so there's this weird kind of dynamic that takes place there. And on the male side, it really is about defining yourself. Now, the book Wild at Heart is very interesting because there's this culture and there's this line that runs through the church, which tells you, you need to be safe. Don't take risks. Don't have challenging beliefs, but instead make sure that you're doing the right thing and you're staying in the right line. And if you look at the quote unquote men of the church, <laughs> I probably shouldn't say it that way. But when you look at the men in the church, you oftentimes see that they kind of fall into that role. They're family men. They have 2.5 kids. They have a steady job. They try to get married by the time they're 22, 23, and then their life is done. That's what they do. Their, their missions are complete. Wild at Heart said something very differently, though, and it talked about the necessity to challenge yourself, the necessity to pursue adventure, and the necessity to kind of push forward and not be that thing. In fact, the author wrote about how it's necessary for men to be dangerous. And I think that's a really kind of like interesting way to look at it and something that was difficult for me growing up because it wasn't enough just to be that church person. That wouldn't work for me. I rode motorcycles. I rode with people that I shouldn't. I did things I really shouldn't do. I did drugs. And You rode in a gang. You were in a gang. <laughs> it was a gang. He, was, he has a vest. It's a gang. <laughs> so I, I did things I shouldn't have done by the church's standard, and I was shunned because of it. But I still felt like I was part of that culture. And I remember remarking to one of my friends at the time saying, I don't feel like I belong here. But the flip side is the way that the church inculcates that belief in you is that you don't feel like you belong anywhere. Because to be somebody like me in the church means I don't belong in the church, but I don't belong in the world. And so there was this really weird crisis of identity that came out as a result of it. And it resulted in my political beliefs and it resulted in having to go through the process of 
identifying me and what that means. And so I think that answers your question. Yeah, I get that. I think I get what you're talking about. And I mean, so this is like a huge culture culture thing. What, Adam, what about you? Did you have this kind of thing? Does this exist within the Jewish faith in this capacity or is it was it different for you growing up? I, I don't think it was the same growing up. I didn't have the same level of judgment or anything, or maybe I just didn't perceive it the same way because I wasn't part of the in crowd, but that mostly just came from me being an awkward kid. Um... Also, being a child of two cultures, my my dad is from the States. My mom is from Israel. Um, my dad's family was kind of scattered all around. He was an Ashkenazi Jew, so uh, so Eastern European, you know, white presenting, and that's actually what you see in most uh, Jewish communities in the States. Um, my mom, meanwhile, has a darker complexion. Um, she's half Moroccan, half Yemenite, and uh, the the culture in Israel with Judaism is also, I think, almost a little more similar to how it is here, where it's just it's the default. Um, but we don't. But in both cultures that I was in, there wasn't the same level of judge of of judging one another. Um, and I think, and I think it kind of goes back to. Uh, what you were saying before about like wanting to be holy or seeing yourself as holy or unholy or um, something along those lines. Um, and this came up in a discussion. Jews talk a lot, just letting you know. Uh, and it's, it goes, that goes into the, the whole questioning thing. One, uh, one conversation I had sort of uh, it, it outlined like a very interesting difference I saw between uh, that, that, as soon as they said it, I saw it sort of everywhere. Um, there's a big difference between uh, how Jews perceive the world and how Christians perceive the world, where um, a Christian, uh, like a priest or or a lay Christian, will bless something to make it holy, um, to make it pure. A a rabbi or a practicing Jew will bless something not to make it holy, but to thank God for it already being holy. So by default, so it's like good by default as opposed to needing to make something good. Um, and I think that that's, I mean, it's sort of something I picked up on. Um, and so part of my like questioning thing when I was growing up, um, my, you know, my best friend growing up was Catholic, um, very like very involved in the church. Um, uh, and he lived like on exactly the opposite side of town from me. Um, but he is, you know, my best friend, we would hang out, we would hang out together all the time uh, in high school, which sort of culminated senior year in bringing each other to uh, two services. So I brought him to uh, Kol Nidre services, which is the, the evening before Yom Kippur. It's one of the holiest services in the Jewish year. Um, and I brought him. So I was already like, fasting i'd already eaten everything and i was ready to go and he met me at synagogue and he was like chewing gum and uh he had no idea and surprised our other high school friend and she was like tony what are you doing here um <laughs> so he came and he got to see what yom kippur service was like the like real ultimate seriousness of that holiday and then uh we traded and i got to go see christmas eve mass with him um, we got to do that sort of cultural exploration and we continue to do that. You know, he comes over to my, uh, he comes over to me for holidays. Sometimes I go to, uh, I go to him for, you know, we just talk, I guess, talk shop 
as it were. Uh, but that's like, for me, that's what it was growing up is that, is that like, I had my faith, I had my group of people, whether or not I was uh, friends with most of them was a different story, but we had that, we had that shared thread. Um, and other people had their own faiths, they had their own experiences. And I think part of my questioning nature was just wanting to go and question and learn more. That's amazing. I think that's really cool. <laughs> it's interesting because like uh, we talk about Judeo-Christian religion and it, it's the combination of the Jewish religion and the Christian religion, but the foundations are totally different. It's a misnomer. Yep. It's, it's uh, <laughs> Judeo-Christian is a coded way of saying uh, European. Yep. It's a coded way of saying white culture. That's that's for you, Ben Shapiro. Um, so this is, we talk about childhood too, but this stuff, this is big. I mean, I talk about not, not religious stuff, but from a personal standpoint, um, growing up with a neglectful family and how that affected me, affected me as an adult. And I still carry baggage. I still have difficulty processing feelings and dissociation. And this really affected me into my adulthood, but religion is, is very similar. It's your background. So what is, how does it affect you now as an adult? You want me to go first? <laughs> I love my family. I want to start everything I'm about to say <laughs> by saying uh -oh. that. Um, I love your family too. They're very, they're lovely people. They are. Uh, and that's really true. Like they are very lovely people. And it's like while I'm sitting here, my dad calls me and I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, good timing. Good timing. The, I think that there are a couple things there to kind of think about. And one of which is, growing up for me to be a good Christian meant to be a good Republican. And they're not separable. In fact, if you were a bad Republican, isn't that you didn't vote Republican, uh, you would be considered to be a bad Christian, right? So in fact, it went so far as if you supported a woman's right to choose or if you supported uh, universal health care or if you voted for like Al Gore, all of these things would make you a bad Christian. And I can think of it in growing up and how it affected me. Uh, I remember I had this girlfriend when I was younger. I don't even know if you know this story. Uh, the And we had just started talking, like everything was going well. And she revealed to me that she was a Democrat. And revealed it. Revealed it as if it was some dark <laughs> secret. Gasp. <Yeah. gasps> and it was a point of contention between us because I was politically right. And looking back on that, I've really regret that like she was actually a really cool person and i wasn't in the place to be there but there's still to some degree that now right so from the communities i was a part of in the past they oftentimes look at me like i'm just this weird renegade person who doesn't believe any of the stuff that they do and they oftentimes will look at me as if i'm not christian in fact there are a vast majority of them that would probably describe me as apostate even though I couldn't be further from the truth. Could you explain what apostate is? Apostate just means to have left the community. Um, and that carries repercussions. It carries repercussions into what I want to talk about publicly, what I post on Facebook, what I'm willing to share with my family. Like it carries consequences across the board and it really affects a lot of what you do, right? So, you know, we have neighbors and they are good Christians. They have two kids. They... They go to church every Sunday and they invited me to church a while ago and it was, I'd never gone. And that probably makes me a bad Christian. And it's that internalization, right? And the reason I talked about earlier that schism is that internalization of the dichotomy of self. It's like, there's this part of me and there's this other part of me. 
and it feels like they're in conflict. And I think that's a big part of it still for me today is that I oftentimes feel in conflict over issues. I oftentimes feel in conflict over what's the right thing to do, right? And I obsess over that. What is the right thing to do? And you'll laugh because you know that's true. But it's a, it's a, it makes things difficult. It makes things difficult to even make the right choice. And so you get that paralysis of analysis. So I think if I were to describe that in one word that's or one phrase, that's probably the big thing is just like split. That's probably the thing that you feel the most growing up. Interesting. And it sticks with you in adulthood, right? Yeah. You still feel it? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Joanne, what about you? Does it still affect you today? Is it something that you still, do you, it, that same struggle, that same schism, um, the paralysis of analysis, is that still, is that something that you feel? Well, I started, when you were talking, I realized that, like, I find myself doing that on Facebook or, you know, other venues, I guess, too, where I'm still filtering myself because there's people, you know, from my past um, and where I'm just hesitant to like be all out there with my liberal views, I guess. And, um, and I think I, I laugh because you say liberal as if it's a slur. I know. <laughs> um, but I'm also, I mean, fairly new at coming to some of them. Um, I would say, you know, only like in the past 10 years would I call myself pro-choice. And so I still like understand and remember like where like the pro-life um values are coming from um even though now i you know i struggle and rail against that but and and i and especially with the idea that when they when it becomes a single issue voting um decision where like they will vote for a person like Donald Trump simply because um, they think he's going to put forth more pro-life agenda. So um, there's there's some of that where I feel like a, a little bit of that tension. Um, but in general, I think how I am affected by my religious views now, it's um, the thing that's changed the most is I think feeling um, a little bit alone in my family, not only my extended family, but even so my spouse, we've been together since we were 16 and we met in youth group at church and grew up in the church after we got married. We were you know, choosing churches together. And then um, several years ago, I mean, we've been basically, we've had the same life experiences since we were teenagers. But whereas mine, I don't know, I I feel like faith is something that's part of my DNA. So in, my, in our ex shared experiences, I continued to have faith, but my like political and social values really started to shift even before my spouse's political and social values started to shift. But it was like once that started to shift for them, it became, it just kind of went off the road. And now, you know, they would describe themselves as agnostic and, you know, no longer attend church. And so it's like a new world for me, I guess, to navigate all that. And we have two kids. And so figuring out how to parent in that way as well, like both of us with the value to make sure that they feel 
free to make their own choices and to believe in science because <laughs> um, neither of us really had that growing up. Um, but but yet both coming from a different perspective on that now. That's really interesting. I just think this is fascinating. I love this stuff. I keep saying that's interesting because that, it's this is a world that doesn't exist for me. And I mean, so Adam, how does it how does have been having been raised Jewish? How does that affect you now as an adult? What are the echoes, positive or negative? Uh, there are a lot of them. But actually, first, I have to take issue with something that Joanne just said. Uh, I'm a I'm a in my day to day. I'm a science teacher. And so I always it always I always cringe a little bit when I hear people say that they believe in science. <laughs> <laughs> because science doesn't care if you believe it's still yeah. going to be true. Uh, but when you grow up fundamentalist, science is a religion that is not fundamentalist Christianity. Super <laughs> weird. And, <laughs> and actually, it, that's one thing that did stick with me. Um, as I was sort of, I wavered a lot in my Jewish identity growing up. Um, my, my, you know, growing up, I went to, I went to temple on Saturdays. I sort of did did youth group not really i was pretty lazy i dropped out of hebrew school um i no kidding like i actually dropped out of hebrew school and then went to a different one um uh, i'm a proud graduate now uh <laughs> so so i but i had a lot of struggle especially when i was like 15 my dad passed away and so i was um so i spent the you know my formative teenage years trying to figure out where i fit in the in this paradigm of of the Jewish community of the Jewish faith, um, one thing that sort of sticks out to me because I had a lot of these experiences growing up. I went to I went to you know public you know public schools growing up, and then college I was at uh, my undergrad. I went to two of the most Jewish non officially Jewish universities in the country. Um, SUNY Binghamton, which is about 10 to 15% Jewish, and Boston University, which also is about 10 to somewhere between 10 and 15% Jewish. Um, and I worked really hard to sort of find where I fit in the Jewish, uh, where my Jewish identity lies. Um, there's this schism of like science versus religion. It exists in the in in the the Christian paradigm, especially in like the more fundamentalist Christian paradigm. But my favorite professor um, in college, Dr. Abrams, was a very observant, observant Chabad, uh, Orthodox Jew, black hat, long beard, uh, black coat, and he wore it in lab. He was a chemistry professor, and he wore it in lab. Um, and I heard him give a talk once at the at the BU Chabad, um, and something that stuck with me, really stuck with me, was that was that. He doesn't see uh, si uh, faith and science as mutually exclusive things. He he believes that um, he uses science to further his faith. As he understands more, he gets closer to understanding his concept of God, understanding how God works, what those mysterious ways are that God works in. Um, that is part of his quest that's part of why he does science is because it's it's so in tune with his religion um as far as like how it how it affects me now i then went to get a master's degree at another ridiculously jewish university american university um bu is known as bju american is known as aju so <laughs> 
just it <laughs> just so happened complete coincidences uh but like in the in the modern day i find myself um surrounded no matter where i live um i find myself comfortable um with other jews that doesn't mean that i'm only hanging out with other jews um but but you know my my weekly life my yearly cycle um has a lot of jewish folks in it doing jewish events that it's not because i'm a particularly devout jew i mean i have two tattoos my mom knows my mom knows she saw them on a live stream oh, once thank god uh and they're both jewish tattoos so it's you know really really confusing for a lot of people <laughs> it's uh, a double whammy right there man <laughs> it's great <laughs> i literally have a star of david on my left shoulder uh <laughs> I did not know that until right now. <laughs> so, I have you know I have these I have these tattoos, but I'm but um, it's sort of like being Jewish is just a fact of life. So on Friday nights I do Shabbat dinner, which which can get super religious, but for me is an excuse to have friends over and drink some wine, light some candles, eat some bread, and just have a good bonding experience with my in my last relationship shabbat dinner was that excuse to make sure that we had a night together that we could just hang out and talk not about work when i was growing up it was the same way that was that was the family dinner that we made sure to have didn't matter if i wanted to go to the mall later i could go to the mall at like eight o'clock eight thirty after we were done with shabbat dinner um doing other holidays it's just all of them are communal events for me everything about being jewish in my life revolves around this idea of community but it's not exclusively jewish and in fact in fact one of my uh favorite memories with sarah and with jay um was after the campaign uh in december i you know i texted him and i was like hey let's hang out and i went to their house and i brought a menorah and I brought um I brought some food and Sarah made wonderful food for us. Um and I just brought jelly donuts because that's actually a, a Hanukkah tradition. Um we call them Suvganyot, but really they're just jelly donuts. <laughs> and we sat and we had dinner and we lit candles and we had and we, you know, ate a great dinner and then pretty bad jelly donuts. <laughs> uh, we cooked those in the oven first, though, and that was pretty good. I'd never done that before. Yeah, they got like way it. better. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but that's where that's where Judaism is for me right now. It's like it's a part of my life. It's a fact of life. It's uh, one way that sort of energizes me and helps me with my identity. But uh, it's not. It's also not an exclusionary thing. Um, in my like my friend group here is my like we call it we call ourselves the Jew Crew. Um, like literally that's our Facebook chat is the Seattle Jew crew, <laughs> but it's not only Jews. We all like we have, we call them Jew adjacent as well. So people in our group who are not, who are not Jewish, but are attached to us as well. And they participate, they're not Jewish, but they participate as equal members of the community um, because, you know, they're just as much family as, as the Jewish people are. I think that's beautiful. Um, just along those lines of community, I think that's something at the church I attend now, um, where especially after the election, a lot more people, um, maybe people that didn't even have a connection to Christianity in the past, um, I think started to feel like they wanted to be part of something bigger. And um, I think some of us are finding that in 
a community. It's technically a United Methodist Church, but um, you know, their motto is like about being open to everyone. You hear more the divine than even God or Jesus, but there's some of that too. We still practice communion, but there's also something about the music or about um, being part of protests or community action, um, about raising funds for people who've been detained by ICE and um, those kinds of things that can bring us together under like a shared faith or even just a shared ideal. And then you know, it creates this sense of community and like you said, shared meals or coming together. And so that's been something that I am still really grateful to have. It's funny because like I've never been to a church like that. Not once. Uh, my experience is actually the opposite. I remember one of the churches that I stopped attending was strictly because I listened to the pastor go up to the pulpit and speak about how Obama was the antichrist and it was our job to vote against him. And I was like, I can't do this. I can't do this. Like, I first off, I know the policies of the guy you're telling me to vote for. Uh, doesn't line up with how I feel. And secondly, there's no way this is going to be it. And it's, it was such a smack in the face for me because I'm like, I can't do this. You clearly don't care about people. The only messages that I heard them speak about were, we want a new building, so we need money. Obama's the antichrist. And by the way, he wasn't. And what? <laughs> I thought we were under Sharia law. Now is that not right? He, he I, took I, all our guns. I'm surprised. I thought that he was the. I don't even believe in an antichrist, but I thought he was the antichrist too. Yeah, he, shocking. That got me. Shocking. And that was it. But I never saw them do anything for the poor. I never saw them do anything for the homeless. There was a another church I went to where there was a motorcycle club. Interestingly enough, called the Scythe, and they did. They would go and meet with motorcycle club members who were on the one percenters, which means that they were on the wrong side of the law, and they would minister to them. And what I mean by that is they would counsel them, they would feed them if they needed it, they would give them housing, and that was their job. That was what they did. That was their whole mission. But I never saw people like that weren't, that didn't look like those people, that didn't have long hair and ride Harleys and do this kind of stuff. I never saw them go out. And so, it's good to hear that a church like that exists. Like I'm, I'm happy to hear that. I just wish there were more of them. That's I'm, I'm kind of sad to hear that that's the that that's the case. Um, it's also something that that I grew up doing both in my synagogue growing up and the like Hillel's and everything that I went to in uh, in college and even the ones that I that I attend now. Um, there's as much about the cultural and religious aspect as there is the the aspect of what we call tikkun olam of fixing the world um making the world a better place than than it was when we entered it um so we do so there are teen feeds through one of my one group i'm in um that they go and work at like the youth shelters um one group is doing um it's called senior senior prom um where this is this is my friend uh, as part of her work with one of the local Jewish organizations is holding a uh, holding a prom for a retirement community. That is so cool. <laughs> right? That is it. neat. It's next week. Oh hey! <laughs> uh, and I don't have a date, but also I'm not going. <laughs> uh, it's and and again, you know, that's it's lovely that that 
there are organizations that get to do stuff like that. It's also hard though, being Jewish in Seattle. Um, this is Seattle is the least church city in the least church state in the union. And being so being Jewish, which is already a, you know, a small minority of the population, um, they're pretty hidden. It's the, they've been called the hidden yidden in, in the Seattle area. Like I, it took me two years to find a solid Jewish community here, a group of people that I would do all of my holidays with that I would go, um, that I would not only do holidays with, but also just like call up if I wanted to hang out, um, that like truly became my, my community. There were, it was always the periphery, um, because it took so long to figure out like where the Jews actually were here. Um, now that I know it's an open secret, but it's, it was, it was difficult coming here at first because that community was not visible. I think what's really interesting just from, from my perspective as someone that's not in any of these communities or didn't grow up in it is there's, you can hear it. We're literally like it's Adam and I on one side of the table and then it's Joy and Jay on another side of the table. So we're literally bisected that way. But it's hearing on your side of the table. Um, when you guys talk about religion, you almost always, both of you do, you almost always talk about it as if it's it's enmeshed in politics. Like it is, it they are they are synchronized systems. They, they exist together and then for Adam, it's interesting to hear you talk about it because the focus is more on community. It's more on building that community and creating that community and expanding that community and being more present in a physical way and like being present in the world. But for you guys, your religion is far more tied to politics and voting and being pro-life or pro-choice and a good Christian or a bad Christian. And it's it's really interesting to me. So how for you guys did it shape not not how the church tried to shape your politics, but how did your own personal when you finally had that moment? of aha where you're like this doesn't jive with who I am as a person how did that how did your religion at that point play in did it affect your politics at all did it change them in any way that question's also going to go to you Adam so I have a fun answer but I really want to (laughs) wait you want me to go okay I don't know if I could point to a single moment where I would say yep that's the moment that I decided to divest myself from the uh, for lack of a better word, inhibitions that the church placed on me. Uh, I think it was more of a gradual thing. But, you know, it was really funny. So my major in college, as you all know, was philosophy, right? That was what I went to do. And the reason I went to do it was because I wanted to learn to think better. And that's always been kind of the flavor of my religion, too, is I want to be critical about it. I want to analyze it. And I want to be uh, right. I think is the really the answer. Like I want to be right about whatever I'm saying. And that's a big piece of it for me. Like it's a big piece of it still. Um, and so I think maybe it was that choice of I'm going to go to school. I'm going to learn to think and being around people who flat out just told me I was wrong all the time and especially wrong about believing in God. And so I think that was a really hard place for me to be. Now, I think as a result, it strengthened to some extent my resolve and weakened it in others. And that was hard. That was a hard experience to go through. So if I could pick one, I think that's probably it. Um, but that was that choice to go to school and study this thing that I was told that is pointless. Don't do it. Uh, that really cinched it up for me. 
I mean, I think you hear Marco Rubio said it, and I disagreed with him. He said, we need less philosophers, more welders. No, what we need is welders who know philosophy and philosophers who know how to weld. But so that's my, I think being able to think is really important. And so I remember all of your lovely philosophy group friends and were very unafraid to say you're wrong. So is that, would you, is it safe to assume that being told by people like, no, you're wrong, and then having to like find your way through that that feeling, is that the thing that really, that really pushed you towards um, from moving from a conservative political background into a into a leftist background i mean you you yelled on a previous podcast jesus was a socialist (laughs) um i think if i could say the thing that pushed me away from it was just reading the bible i think we have a tendency as a group to avoid actually engaging with the texts and the writings of people in a primary way and we tend to take other people's words on it we tend to take our pastor's words we tend to take the words of somebody we trust, we tend to take the words of others, rather than getting in there and actually doing the gritty work of let's work through it. Now, that doesn't mean that the people who aren't able to do that, right, are worse or anything of the sort. But if you're able, you should. And I think even stronger, if you're able, you're required. And if you want to be able to have any kind of a feeling or opinion on it. And I did that, right? Like I grew up, I went to a group called Awana, and I studied the Bible, I memorized verses there. um, And I did really well in it. Like I did really, really well in that. And that was the primary source of my education growing up because I was a fundamentalist Christian. I was homeschooled like a lot of us were. And so that was my primary source of education was biblical texts and those kind of things. And so having to be, having to rectify and balance the external information I was getting was probably the thing I would say. Go read the text, analyze it and compare it to what people tell you. And you find, oh, Christ, that doesn't match up or match up. And yeah. Uh, Christ, that doesn't match up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, college was definitely a turning point for me too. And I think I went to SPU, which is a you know, free Methodist liberal arts university. And it I think that was probably the I mean, you like you, I studied the Bible a ton as a kid and teenager. You know, we have, you know, Bible studies and all that, but it was in college at a Christian school where the professors were wanting us to um, think about scriptures kind of for ourselves and from a historical context. That was the first time I realized that there's like multiple creation stories <laughs> and that, um, you know, and what a mythological story means in the context of scripture. And, um, and so that was just like, you know, my mind basically exploded in college. And um, and so it just opened up this way of being able to think critically and to be able to think about what my values were and how that aligned um, with faith and also politics and my, you know, social relationships. And I think also being pro-life at that time is kind of what pushed me from being a Republican to a Democrat and voting that way because I started to feel like, well, if we actually really care about like saving the unborn baby, then we should be like having these policies in place that actually like support, you know, mothers, support, you know, teenage girls support when the child is actually born and what kind of services, you know, so education policy and health. And, and it was like, well, that's what the Democrats are trying to accomplish. Um, So that really, you know, I I think is what changed my politics at that time. 
Uh, at least that's what they say they're trying to accomplish. I'm not sure that bears out in reality, but fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but when, when I was in college and that was like the two choices, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying they're still not the better choice. <laughs> uh, I want to clarify one thing. And I think you reminded me of this. There's a, especially when you come from an evangelical background, there's two doctrines in particular that are really problem problematic and they go hand in hand. So it's often called the inerrant and infallible doctrine, which is that the Bible is the literal interpretation it is literally to be interpreted. There is no error inside of it, and there is no word that is infall that is fallible. So everything is true. There are no errors, and it should be literally interpreted. And I don't have any idea how you can square that up with reality. Even as like a fourteen year old kid, I couldn't figure that out, and that really pushed me away from that. So I'm glad you brought all that up because that's really important. That's so different than than my experience. Uh, Sarah, you're right that it's like the two different sides of the table <laughs> are completely different experiences. Um, and growing up, like it's always, it is. I, I mentioned this before. It's all about asking the questions and and trying to interpret things. Um, the, the Passover Seder is this, you know, however long or short you want the, you want the event to be that ends up in, Eventually, it ends up in dinner, but first there's storytelling and there's telling stories about the stories. Jay was at my Seder this year and uh, didn't budget time properly for it. So he actually left about an hour before dinner started. Uh, That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but everything is every, everything is an sort of an argument in in. Um, in Jewish scripture, because we have the Tanakh, we have we have the Torah, we have uh, the prophets, we have the other writings, but we also have the what's called the Oral Torah, and we have the Talmud. The Talmud is this is is a book that is really just a series of discussions written down over centuries of rabbi interpreting something and then another rabbi saying why that first rabbi was wrong and then you know it goes on and on and on nothing in in like the, in Judaism it, it's you know the the Torah is considered the word of God the um the prophets the writings of the prophets were divinely inspired but it doesn't mean and and like being the word of God it's 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 accurate but it doesn't mean that there isn't a hidden meaning. Nothing is straightforward. Everything is everything can be interpreted in a million different ways. And that's why uh, there's that old joke about how if you get two Jews in a room, invariably you'll get at least three opinions. I, I'll say we have it too in Christianity, but we don't talk about it. it instead of it being through like uh, the Talmud or through actual oral Torah or those kind of things, we had it through philosophy. All of our do doctrine, all of our theology is born out in philosophy, but there are many Christians who don't even know the name of Augustine who wrote the majority of it and comes out of the 400, 400 AD or the people who came after him. Thomas Aquinas was another one. Right. And so, you know, most people don't even know the name of Anselm. Like these are all things that they don't know. The monks were the ones who wrote that stuff and we just don't talk about it. And people don't know about the Council of Nicaea and learning what, how they sat as a group and collectively decided what's going to go into this big book that's going to give us all of the information we're going to need about Christianity and faith. And we have the the four gospels in Christianity. I say we like I'm part of the community, but whatever, roll with it. I, my mom was an Irish Catholic. I'm just using her street cred real quick. Uh, but there's the, the four main gospels. And a lot of people don't realize that there were a lot more of them than just four. And it was the Council of Nicaea, I believe, that that created those or that picked those four out. 
And I think it was the the Gospel of Thomas was also up to be in the Bible as well, but that didn't make it in. So like you're it's it's interesting to hear that there's this idea of the inerrant and infallible word of God. And yet the the structure of what created that book was put together by a group of dudes like hundreds of years ago. I want to clarify one thing. So the Bible as we have it today is actually in its primary form as early as 127 AD. And that's by Father Irenaeus. The Council of Nicaea, the only thing it does is it establishes and codifies it as doctrine. But this is a really important part because the Council of Nicaea is actually the first time that you see state and religion start coming together for Christianity. And it happens as a directly result of Constantine the Great. And so this is a really big problem. And it's actually, I think, part of the reason why Christianity itself is so embedded with politics. It's in our damn DNA. It's in our history. And it only happens as a result of the debate between the two bishops of, uh, was Athanasius and Alexander. Um, yeah, anyway, I, those names are absolutely wrong. But like, there's a great book called When Jesus Became God that I recommend everybody read because it goes through those first few years when we're actually getting involved with government which we never should have done. At least that's my feeling on it. Christianity never should have been part of the political scheme, but now we're inseparable from it. And yet, uh, when you look at when you look at the Torah itself, the Torah is as much a holy book as it is a guideline to creating a civilization. In in the Torah, you have your founding stories, you have the founding fathers, um, the creation, the the myth of the creation of the community, and you also have the set of laws that are handed down that tell you how to govern your life, how to uh, how to sow your fields, how to treat other people. There there are laws in there about everything and then some. Um, once you actually read, you realize that uh, every every Shabbat, every Saturday morning, we read a portion of the Torah. And so you cycle through it every year. And what people don't realize is that like probably 70% of those weeks are like just reading off laws that were written 5,000 years ago. Is like like literally some of the driest stuff talking about talking about how you're supposed to slaughter a goat in a particular way <laughs> or when you're supposed to slaughter a goat and why. There is there is in fact a rule on leftovers in the Torah. Yeah. So the sacrifices that that they used to, you know, they used to sacrifice goats and other burnt offerings at the temple, but then those were actually sacrificed to be eaten. So you could bring the sacrifice. Uh, the goat would be slaughtered, goat would be cooked, burned, uh, and then ready to to eat. So you could eat it on the first day, you could eat it on the second day, but on the third day you had to throw it out. This is in the Torah. Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, Deuteronomy 19. I have to look. It's the it's the uh, it's the chapter right after the man shall not lie with man as man lies with woman, which is a also sort of a the challenge, the, the thing about the Torah and Judaism is that it's written in Hebrew. It's read in Hebrew. Um, it's the duty of every of every Jew to be able to understand it in the original language, because there's a lot of subtlety and a lot of nuance that's lost in the translation. So, when when you know they use the word abomination in uh, in the the English translation, it's not the same. It's not in the same way as that it is in the in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it like they're talking about it in the context of the time, saying like this is this practice of man lying with man is um, something that's being done by other cultures, and so to distinguish ourselves, 
uh, to be to be different from those people, we're going to do this instead. So, um, so you know, it's intricate because we obviously share, you know, like the Torah and the Bible, um, and yet, you know, aren't raised with that same idea to think of it from. I mean, we, they talk about it, you know, being from Hebrew, but we're not, unless maybe you go to theology school, you're not encouraged to learn Hebrew to better understand the scriptures. But I guess I'm also curious, um, you know, we have the New Testament and the Old Testament. And so there's the things from the Old Testament that, you know, still get quoted and used for ammunition against people. But there's also sort of this, well, that's the Old Testament. So there's a lot of stuff we don't like still practice from that, you know, like, you know, when you can eat goat. So how is that in the Jewish faith as far as you're, you're still, you're not necessarily practicing those same things like with the goat, but, um, how does that translate, I guess, over time? Well, uh, that's, that's the thing about the interpretation, right? Rabbinic Judaism is not, is not temple Judaism. Um, rabbinic Judaism is what happened after the temple was destroyed when, when Jews realized, hey, we're probably not going to be able to rebuild this thing again. This this diaspora is happening, and and um, Jews are being spread across the across the country across the world. Um, so we need to figure out how to adapt uh, our our faith to this new reality. Um, and so all of so everything sort of got reinterpreted, and that's where the Talmud comes in. That's where Pirkei Avot comes in. A lot of the um, a lot of the the analysis and further thinking evolved over the course of hundreds of years through just like textual analysis and reanalysis, reinterpretation. Um, it's sort of how we ended up with uh, something that I pulled up on my phone before because the whole thing comes back to the politics. On December sixth of two thousand six, the conservative Judaism, the con the whatever the um, organization is, they published two. Responsa. Responsa are interpretations of of text, sort of uh, addressing modern situations, um, and so two competing responsa were published at the same time. Normally, the organization will only publish one on a given topic, but they published two at the exact on the same day related to gay marriage, and they were two different ones. One one in support of gay marriage. One. Um, uh, reaffirming the the ban on male male anal sex, um, and basically basically they said, "Here are your options. Pick one." And every, <laughs> and and synagogues could do could do as they chose uh, in the conservative movement. Uh, but the fact is, like this stuff is still being reinterpreted to this day, taking modern modern situations and um, and applying this old world text to the modern situation so that those same ethics of our fathers can be uh, fit into a modern context. I think to, I know we're getting close to being done, but like the, one of the last things that really strikes home for me, and this story really kind of like echoes for me. So I remember I, I had a conversation with a pastor and there's this passage about David where David goes and eats the showbread. Right now, anybody who knows anything about temple rites knows it's only supposed to be the priest. And in fact, to eat the showbread was really bad. Uh, now, unless it was given to you, and that was totally okay. But the thing that made it uh, 
odd was David lies to the priest. So he does it under false pretenses. He does it while fleeing authority and he does so all while violating a temple right. Now this is a really big deal and it really threw me for a loop because as a young Christian, I was obsessed with, okay, what was the right conduct there? What made that the right decision? And I realized something as I kind of like studied more and more and more. In fact, David's life is riddled with these kind of examples where he does things that aren't historically the right thing. But nevertheless, God still calls him a man after his own heart in the Bible. That's actually how he's described. And the reason being, David's heart was in the right place. It had nothing to do with the action itself. And I think this this may, maybe it's a very Christian interpretation, but like it had nothing to do with the action itself. It had everything to do with the context of the situation and where David's heart was. And it had nothing to do with, you did a thing, you shouldn't have done that. And so I think for me, like that to me, if I could define my faith, going back to the first question, that comes back to saying that. Where's your heart? Where, where are you really after and who are you really concerned about? And if your concern is, how do I look in the community? If your concern is, am I doing the right thing by ritual? Am I doing those kind of things? Then you're probably in the wrong place. But if your concern is, do you love God? Do you love your neighbor? Then your heart's in the right place and you're going to do the right thing. Even if it doesn't historically look like the right thing. Um, one one area where religion actually is a struggle for me in in politics, Jews are often seen as as in the progressive wing are seen as left wing, very liberal, like social justice oriented, um, and so I identify pretty strongly as as a leftist, um, smolani as they would say in in Israel. But the one challenge is being a being a, and I, I will come out and say it as a Zionist Jew, um, who, who believes that I believe that a state of Israel should exist, whether its current government is good or not is a different story, but I believe that one should exist. That automatically alienates me from a large, a large part of the progressive American wing. Um, I, I, and that's like my big struggle right now being, uh, of Israeli parentage and being, you know, with my family being there, having been there and seeing, you know, been on, been on both sides of the green line, speaking to people on both sides and recognizing the atrocities that are happening on, on that have happened and are happening to this day on both sides of the border. Um, saying that I am Zionist, saying that I believe in a state of Israel, um, automatically sort of, uh, excludes me from a lot of left-wing, groups uh and it does make me feel pretty sad that's and i think some people misinterpret to what it is to be a zionist and i i think you can be a zionist who also recognizes that and please correct me if i'm wrong you can also be a zionist who also believes that palestinians shouldn't be persecuted and rounded up and killed right right and <laughs> and that's that's what it is like uh calling somebody these days calling somebody a zionist in a derogatory sense is what 40 years ago calling somebody a jew in a derogatory sense was it's a different way of saying of saying a very similar thing um as one thing I'll say is I have a friend, I struggle with that word nowadays, who used it in a derogatory term just like a week ago. And so this is still a real thing that people feel and it just it boggles my mind. I'm sorry. I just want to throw that in there. It's kind of like the word patriot now almost is is starting to. And and I, I guess that's sort of how I feel about Zionism is it seems like a idea of patriotism to the 
idea of Israel. But, you know, even in the States, I feel like if if you use the word patriot, that's not a progressive term. <laughs> but yet we all, you know, care about our country and wanting to make it a better place. Yeah. Um, but actually, that goes to something else that we've talked about before. And then I'll stop talking because I think that we're running low on time. Um uh, this whole conversation has been about religion and uh, it's, I, I think it's kind of a misnomer to call Judaism a religion in the first place. Um, calling Judaism a, a religion uh, strips it of a lot of the facets that make it Judaism. Judaism, Jews are a uh, faith, but they're also a cultural group. They're also a civilization. They're also, um, they're, they're, they're all sorts of things. If, if you convert to Judaism, like, it's a race or ethnicity as well. People will say, if you convert to Judaism, clearly you're not part of the, you're not ethnically Jewish in the same way, but you're Jewish. Um, being Jewish is being part of a nation, not, you know, the nation of Israel, different, different than the country or the state of Israel, but being part of the nation of Israel. When you convert, you become a citizen. If you're born into it, uh, if traditionally, halachically, if your mom is Jewish, then you're born Jewish. Uh, reform movement, if one of your parents is Jewish, you're you're born Jewish. You have that citizenship, that uh, uh, the rite of passage or whatever you want to call it. Um, and it's so akin to being a nation more so than being a religion because it, it even goes to show the divide on this table. Um, when we were talking about when we were talking about how um, religion played a role in uh, Jay and Joanne's politics um, and and worldviews, when when for me it was just it's a way of life. It's just a, you know a part of who I am. Every little every little bit, despite the fact that I didn't even say this, I'm agnostic. I don't really believe in God, um, but I am you know I still do all of the Jewish things because. I'm a part of the, I'm a member of the tribe. So that's, I am fascinated by the entire concept, but I think this, this conversation matters in the context of politics a lot. And you can hear it. I mean, like, like Adam said, it, you can hear it in how embedded both of your faith is in your political values and your political backgrounds. Um, you can hear it in how it affected your identity growing up. You can hear it in how it, in how it played a role in everybody's lives. And I think on the left, we do a disservice to our sessions of religion and then turning around and demonizing anybody that does identify as religious because there's churches like the Methodist church that are really out there doing social justice work and the Episcopalian church that are out there doing social justice work. Uh, there are reformed conservative Christians who are now deep, dark socialists. Um, but there's there's a lot of room for those people and for those for those shifting perspectives on the left. And we need to open up and embrace those people that want to join us. They're not going to know all our language. They're not going to know all the right things to say. They're not going to know all the right places to put their hearts. They're not going to know all the right places to put their resources. It's our job as people that are both that both exist on the left and have come from that background and come from that culture to to reaffirm that they're welcome in that culture and in, in leftist culture and in the leftist community, in the leftist political movement. Um, we need to reaffirm to them that they're welcome and that they're a part of it. And that if you are a person of faith, you have a place in this movement just as much as someone who's a diehard atheist or someone who uh, regards science above religion in a, in a big, almost borderline religious way. Um, but I think that this conversation is significant and the context really matters, especially in 2019, where we're dealing with the era of Donald Trump and the persecution of religious people for a number of reasons across the board. Um, 
So, I mean, I guess that kind of wraps up our discussion. The only thing I want to ask from all of you, though, is right before we sign off and uh, we let everyone know that it's better left to the communities. I uh, I just want to ask if you had one piece of advice to give someone that's struggling with their with their faith and reconciling it with their politics, what would your one piece of advice be to give to them? I would say that it's okay to question. It's okay to sit down and say, that doesn't make sense to me and you don't have to go along with it just because somebody told you to. And that doesn't make you a bad person for that. It doesn't make you wrong. It doesn't make you uh, sinful, I guess, for lack of a better word. None of that. And there's nothing wrong with you if you do. I think that's what I would say. I think that I would say that faith in God, I think, includes this idea that God is loving and forgiving and gracious and generous. and to like apply that to ourselves and to apply that to our neighbors to think about Jesus's life and who he was trying to serve and heal and to think how you would want to emulate that. Um, yeah. Love your neighbor as yourself. The rest is merely commentary. Now go study. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I mean, as a non-religious person, I'm going to just keep mine real quick. You can be on the left and you can have faith. You you don't have to sacrifice and you don't have to choose. Your religion and your politics are not as intertwined as you think. So thank you to uh, Joanne and Adam and Jay for joining in this discussion about religion in light through the lens of politics. I appreciate you guys because right now this discussion is better left to the community. Thanks. Thanks for sitting down, everyone. This is a big, heavy conversation. <laughs> <laughs> this was a big one, but I wanted to do this, and I think it's super fascinating. Um, what I'll probably like what I think we might do is uh, I might trim this out to like twenty minutes, and then do the same thing with our interview. Okay with that. Um, if there are issues, like, yeah. I don't come out of the community, so I'm not like I don't know what's taboo. <laughs> I don't know what you're not um, allowed to say. Thank your. It's not like your parents don't know. Like it's not like I'm reading.